Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning, this is the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm talking to Eileen Chong about her new book of poetry, A Thousand Crimson Blooms. So welcome Eileen. Thank you for having me. Yes, well it's uh, exciting to see this new book. It's your fifth book of poetry I believe. Yes it is. And you originally came from Singapore and moved to Australia as an adult migrant. Yes, um, I came to Australia in 2007 on the 4th of January, so a very clear memory of that. Um, And I started in Australia thinking that I would become a school teacher. Um, I was a school teacher in Singapore um, but things didn't quite work out that way, and I ended up going to Sydney University for a master's in letters, and mm. that's when I discovered that I was a poet. How amazing. So what was the experience at Sydney University like? What, what authors did you read that inspired you? Well, you know, like most people, you think that you're going to write the great novel, you know, and I guess when I came to Australia, I thought, oh, you know, maybe I might write the great migrant, um, Australian migrant novel, but I was working with short stories initially with um, Sue Wolf, and I essentially ran out of fiction classes to take, and I decided to take a class with the poet Judith Beveridge. And I remember walking into that class and leaving the first class just completely afraid of what the poetry class is going to do to my sense of writing and sense of being. And I just thought, oh, gosh, I have to drop this because I won't be getting my A. You know, I felt like it was really difficult. And and I'm very glad that I stuck with it because I very rapidly realized that Poetry was the form that I had been searching for. Um, I've always studied poetry. I've even taught poetry, but I never thought I would ever be a poet. And I'm very glad that I have been a poet now for almost 12 years. That's a wonderful thing, finding your voice. It's a a miraculous gift, in a sense. I'm very lucky. And apart from Judith Beveridge herself, were there any particular writers you were reading where you felt that this was a form that spoke to you that you could also express yourself in any particular forms? Growing up in Singapore and being a student of um, English literature and linguistics, I was very much schooled in the canon, right? I was very much schooled in the British canon. I studied uh, American literature to a small degree, but British literature was was held up to be um, the ideal. But the problem with that is when you grow up in a place like Singapore and you're reading, say, Wordsworth and you're reading, you know, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud and you read and you say, I wonder what daffodils look like. So there was no real correlation, you know, to what was happening on the page to to what was happening in my own world. And when I was in my um, 20s, I found uh, on the shelf a poet 
named Boy Kim Cheng, who's a Singaporean poet. And I realized later on that um, Kim Cheng had migrated to Australia um, 10 years before I did. And I started to reread a lot of his work. Um, and, you know, in, in his work, I found a great mirroring of the migrant experience, the sense of um, someone who had gone through the same uh, education, literary history as I had and had to try to break that and make that anew. Um, the American poet Li Yang Li is also a great touchstone for me, uh, Chinese-American uh, who lives in Chicago. Uh, for me, that was a very powerful uh, way of looking at culture and language and ancestry that I hadn't considered before when I was reading primarily white writers. Uh, the Jewish-American poet Philip Levine was one of my um, inspirations. When I read um, Philip Levine's poem, What Work Is, it completely hit me. Just, it, just, it, just, it was one of those penny-dropping moments where I realized Oh, this is what a poem can do. I remember the process of reading this poem and, and just realizing that, you know, with, with that poem, which was about um, the persona, the speaker, standing in line uh, in Detroit waiting for work. You know, he was a, no, Philip Levine was known as a great working class poet. Um, and this poem talked about a man waiting in line for work and thinking he sees his own brother in front of him. And it goes into the histories and the pains of, of isolation, of labor, of what brotherly love might mean. And I just realized this is what poetry can do. It sidesteps you into this entire world. You're speaking about one thing and then the turn happens and you're speaking about another thing. And it all makes sense. It's all sort of a dream logic of sorts. And I went on to, to do my um, part of my doctorate. I say part because I dropped out of academia. But I, I went on to um, study the work of Philip Levine, and we were in correspondence before he passed away. And he was a great encouragement to me as well. He read my work, and, you know, he assured me that I was on the right path. And it was just... Um, a real generosity of spirit, I think, and um, just a reassurance that this is something that I might want to keep doing. Excellent. Well, how wonderful to find um, an inspiration and a mentor um, and that uh, you got to, you know, be in contact with him before he passed away. That That's very fortunate. Extremely. I mean, he's he was very well known to, to have been a wonderful um, teacher of poetry as well, but the tyranny of distance, you know, there are so many wonderful American poets that um, I respect so much. And um, the fact is that I'll never get to study with them because of distance. Um, so it was really wonderful that he took the time to write to me and um, we still commune on the page, you know. Yeah. Now, um, let's go to your work. Um, now, there's a lot of poems in here that I really, really loved. Um and uh, what would, which one would you like to begin with? Um, I might start with um, one of the poems that you picked, which is a, a poem that I was meditating on today. Um, and the Chinese title, it's, it's, it's 
a Chinese title, which is something quite new for me to step into my bilingualism. Now, I don't really speak or read um, Chinese effectively, so I have maybe about 300 words of written Chinese, which isn't enough to read a newspaper. You need about 3,000 words to read a newspaper. So in, in a way, I used to feel really ashamed of my limited Chinese, but I think it's something that I would like to reclaim. And one of the, one of the words that's very, very um, familiar to many people who, who speak Chinese or grew up in a, in, in a Chinese um, culture is the word rent which translates to endure. But the beautiful thing about the Chinese language is that it's a, it's a pictographic language. So it, it's a completely, system, a completely different system of um, writing and reading. So within the character for the word run um, are different words within that, within that word. So the, the, the word for endure to run is made up of a character for knife, dao, which is at the top, a little dot, which represents a drop of blood, which is um, referenced to the Chinese word dian. And at the bottom, anchoring this word, is heart. So inherent in the word for endure, it means to endure a knife that's pressed to your heart, even though you bleed. I mean, it's a poem in itself, the, the, the character. So what I tried to do with this poem was to unpack that character and also to kind of marry this character to a word that I learned, which is a Scottish word called soul. Well, my husband is Scottish, so and he does speak Scots. So this was a really interesting um, bridging of these two languages for me. Ren, you whet a knife, press the edge to my heart. You draw blood. I breathe from the center of my being, so my chest betrays no rise and fall. I hold still. I look for the moon, but tonight there are only clouds. Today, a new word, soul, to endure what is barely bearable. I will have to do this my entire life. Like my mother and father before me, their mothers and fathers before them, we know this word. I bite my tongue. I write it red on white. Yes, the, the word is a sort of found poem, you know, when you explain how the pictographic image uh, demonstrates the meaning. And... Um, to endure what is barely bearable, I will have to do this my entire life. Um, it's speaking to a, a big backstory there. Is there anything you'd like to share? Um, I think for many people and many marginalised people, this is something um, we all understand, you know. And and my my people have been migrants for a very long time. My my grandparents, three out of four of my grandparents were born in China. Um, one of my grandparents was born in Singapore. And even within Chinese culture, you know, two of my grandparents were very marginalized people. They were Hakka, which are known as the guest people. We don't have any land of our own. We were always um, peasants, you know, so a very working class background. And it's almost a, a bit of a mythological um 
um, family situation where as working class people, my grandparents, my parents have had to endure multiple everyday injustices. And of course, you know, I face these injustices in a different way as a marginalized person, as a migrant, as an Asian Australian woman um, who, you know, and I also have um, privileges that associated with, you know, being quite middle class now, being educated, being um, of East Asian appearance, even though my heritage is Southeast Asian. So um, I think this can be, this, this speaks to many people. You know, we, we all know what it's like to have to bite our tongue at um, points in time. Yep. And, uh, yeah. yeah, no, well, it, it's a beautiful poem and uh, it, it, it conveys uh, a lot of meanings um, outside of the page, so well done. Um, and now one of your great achievements is uh, your first book of poetry, Burning Rice, is actually on the high school curriculum in New South Wales. Yes, I'm very excited about that. That's a huge thing. I mean, so often... Um, uh, poetry books, uh, you know, are, don't reach a wider circulation. They're just read by the poetry community rather than um, the wider community. You know, in fact, this morning I had another interview with um, a university newspaper and the first thing that the interviewer said to me was that she had um, read my work as a student in high school and it was the first year that my book was on the syllabus, which is 2019. And she said when she saw my name pop up, um, she was interviewing me in relation to the Sydney Writers Festival. And she said she couldn't believe that it was the same person because for her that was um, poetry that belonged in the classroom. So that was really interesting for me. And, and also very moving to think that, you know, to, to have – and as, as a school teacher, someone who still loves – teaching and who believes greatly in education, um, to have my book taught in schools, to have teachers read and teach the work, I mean, it just means so much to me. And every time I leave a school um, or a classroom where I'm speaking about my work, I'm reminded again and again that there is so much power in poetry and you know, in, in many ways, the writing and the reading of poetry, as you say, um, occurs in a very rarefied space. You know, a lot of it is in academia or within the poetry communities. But I, I don't think it, it needs to be like this, and I, I don't think it should be like this. I think poetry is for everyone. And, you know, we shouldn't feel like um, one can only read poetry if they are an academic or if they want to debate it or if... Um, we understand everything about a poem. You know, I don't understand everything about poems or a poem or my own poem even, and that's okay. You know, I think poetry is um, a space for ambiguity, and I think that poetry reflects the ambiguity of human existence, um, and I think it holds a lot of um, gifts and a lot of treasures for, for people in general. To have young minds, Read, read the poetry. It's, for me, it's, it's the ultimate prize, 
It is, yeah. I mean, I, I agree poetry is for everyone, but unfortunately the space for poetry isn't necessarily made available. I mean, it's not present in... Um, in the media, you know, there isn't, uh, there used to be a dedicated poetry program on the ABC Radio National, but there isn't any more. And, you know, you don't find poetry in newspapers very much. Um, it doesn't uh, have a particular life in social media that I'm aware of. So, I mean, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's harder to access if people want to find poetry. They, they have to really look for it, in my experience. Um, I think it is an ecosystem um, which can sometimes seem really impenetrable to people. But I hope that, you know, um, I hope that there is, I hope that people don't feel like it's something they can't, they can't come to. And I hope that, you know, the work of um, many contemporary poets writing in Australia today, um, I know that it speaks to many young people and also people of, of, of from many walks of life. And I, I think it's a very important that we understand um, that there is a great diversity of poetry that's being written today. It's not something that's only written by, um, you know, dead white men. It, it's, it's absolutely become very, very diverse. A lot of non-binary poets are writing today. Um, poets from all sorts of backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, all sorts of ages, um, writing about all sorts of things. You know, their, their, their poems, the, the poet Sastra Dio writes about um, computer games, for example. Um, and all these topics and themes, I think, are the province of poetry because they are the province of human experience. Um, and that there is really... I really believe there is a poem and a poet for everyone. Yes, I, I agree um, as well. for every season. Yeah. And I, if you ever come to Melbourne, uh, I invite you to uh, participate in Melbourne's Performance Poetry World, which is uh, every night of the week. Uh, we've got poets from every background uh, reading, reciting their work about every topic on, under the sun. And that's a lot of fun. So I hope you get to Melbourne one day. I will. <laughs> now let's go to your work. Um, what would you? So, and I'm talking to Eileen Chong, who's in Sydney, and her new book is A Thousand Crimson Blooms. And my name is Di Cousins, and this is the 3CR Spoken Word Program. Um, so, what poem would you like to read next? Um, I'd like to read a poem in seven parts and it's um, called Rainbow, and obviously because there's seven colours of the rainbow. Um, are there seven colours of the rainbow? <laughs> if you say so. Um, and <laughs> and this, um, um, Matt is not my strong point. Uh, and this poem um, does owe a debt to Elizabeth Bishop's The Fish. Rainbow. On the first day, we ate the trout with its skin on. Scales in my teeth. You said, let the knife do the work. The second day, I laid the fish out on its side. I pinched its edge and slid the blade clean between fat and muscle. Not all rainbow. Here, tender orange. There, rusted brown. The underside, gelatinous and white. Then the bones. Over lunch, 
The man and woman carved fillets from each other, one word at a time. The cat licks remnants of flesh from flayed skin. Its tongue, red, methodical, and barbed. Nothing left for the third day save the offcut. Cubes of cured trout layered on pickles and rice. How to multiply one fish into many? My mother ties an unseen knot. The string is invisible, yet the hooked fish pulls. It's um, a, a marvelous piece of symbolism, I think, this poem. Uh, there's, in the beginning, uh, it seems that there's something about the relationship between the couple eating, uh, carving fillets from each other one word at a time in, in the way that, uh, you're carving up the fish. But what does it, where, what, where are you going at the end with the mother tying the unseen knot with the invisible string hooking the fish? What does that refer to? I think I think overall this poem speaks to the notion of violence and love, isn't it? And and so much of living and so much of loving is tied up with small violences. You know, we're as as people we are imperfect, um, and we all know how difficult relationships can be, and be they relationships between lovers or parent and child, um, and the notion of attachment and how an attachment can soothe but also bind. Um, and so I suppose, you know, at the risk of being quite disloyal, I, I just sometimes think about my relationship with my parents and especially my mother. And my mother could say something completely innocent and it would annoy me. And I would think to myself, why Why am I even annoyed? You know, that was a completely innocent remark. And if anyone else had said that, I wouldn't even have, you know, taken it that way. But it's because of emotional baggage. And we, we respond in certain ways to people who who push our buttons. And, and, and so I, I do feel very much... Um, an attachment um, to to people, important people in my life who I might not necessarily be able to spend a lot of time with, or without um, without struggling with my own emotions. So um, again, I think an ambiguity, and um, hopefully, it, it, this poem encapsulates what Keats talks about when he talks about negative capability. You know, the notion of having two quite opposing states in, in the one poem or in the one, in the one experience. Yes, uh, I think there's a, there's a multitude of layers here and, uh, and states of mind and possibilities and uh, relationships and reflections. I think it's a very dense piece. Thank you. Yeah. So let's, let's move on to another one. What would you like to read next? My beloved grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who was the last um, of my grandparents, um, passed away last year in October um, after a very long illness. And because of the pandemic, like for many people, um, my parents who live in Sydney as well, uh, my parents and I were unable to go back to Singapore for the funeral. 
And it was a really difficult situation for us, and we had to kind of create our own rituals um, in here in Sydney to, to remember her by. Um, and my grandmother was very unwell for a long time with dementia, so I think she was um, suffering from dementia for a good 15 years. And, you know, you could see every time I went back to Singapore, and I've been living in Sydney now for um, – this is my 14, 14 year in Sydney. So I, I, when I left Singapore, she was still quite well. And every time I visited Singapore, I would see her mind kind of just crumble a little. And it was really difficult to, to watch. And because I didn't see her on a daily basis, you know, the, the change was very, very obvious. And so... I was introduced to the, the Ghazal form um, in English. You know, the Ghazal is a, a classic, a classic um, Arabic form, a classic form in Arabic poetry, and which has a long tradition of, of poetry in the culture. And I was in conversation with a wonderful um, Dubai-based Lebanese poet named Zina Hashem Beck, and we exchanged um, a series of emails around poetry um, as part of an interview. And I, in reading her work, I was so moved by her use of the gazelle that I, I sought permission from her to use the form as well. And the first poem that I wrote in the gazelle form is this poem for my grandmother. Gazelle for my grandmother. I sing to you in the afternoons, grandmother. I see you wear the ring I gave you, grandmother. You have forgotten it was once mine. It fit my finger perfectly as it does yours, grandmother. I hand you a book of photographs and poems. You turn the pages restlessly. You never learned to read, grandmother. When and why were these pictures taken? Exactly where are your memories hidden, grandmother? The corridors are broken, the rooms are darkened. Yet I look at you and I behold you, grandmother. On the shelf, in your Chinese dress and wavy hair, you cradled your young son, not yet a grandmother. This morning, when I was absent, you told the world I, little Belle, love you best. My heart is yours, grandmother. It's a, a beautiful elegy. Well done. Um, Thank you. Yeah, really lovely images, um, the ring and the photographs. And that she told the world that you loved her best. That's beautiful too. Oh, she, she, it was terrible, but she used to tell everyone that I was her favorite granddaughter, which, you know, it's all pleasure but also embarrassment because what about the other grandchildren? Yes, that's um, right. I wrote this poem um, before my grandmother passed away, but in a way, you know, something like dementia, it's about com- complicated grief, isn't it, where you're, you're watching the person you love disintegrate in front of you. Um, and that was a very difficult time for my whole family. And, and in a way, I think writing poems for my grandmother, anticipating her death or anticipating... Um, this grief was part of my the way I dealt with this grief. Yeah. 
Well, we've only got um, 29 minutes, so um, we're just about out of time, unfortunately. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you, Eileen. Um, uh, where can people buy your new book, A Thousand Crimson Blooms? Um, you can get A Thousand Crimson Blooms directly from the University of Queensland Press at uqp.com.au. Um, you could also support your independent, your local independent bookshop. They will um, order the book in if they don't already have the book on the shelf. Great. Okay. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've been talking to Eileen Chong about her new book, A Thousand Crimson Blooms, and my name is Di Cousins, and this has been the 3CR Spoken Word Programme. <laughs> 